Uh, one of the things that surprises kids in my scripture classes is when I tell them that I used to be a science teacher, but now I'm a minister. Uh, they're surprised because most people today assume that science and believing in God don't go together, that they're incompatible. Uh, that one is about evidence and reason, and the other one is about believing without evidence. One is about the physical material world, and the other is about the spiritual world. It's a pretty common opinion in the world today, but it's really only been around for the last 300 years or so, uh, since the age of enlightenment. Uh, uh, scientists and philosophers from about the late 1600s uh, began to focus on human reason, uh, human reasoning, and uh, as a result they, they began to use different techniques that focused on measurement and repeatability and uh, the scientific method developed. The Enlightenment produced all sorts of wonderful things, in, including the Industrial Revolution. It had a, a, a um, constitutional government seemed to arise out of this as well. There were lots of great things. Uh, but philosophers like David Hume focused so much on the value of human reasoning that they proudly decided that if the human mind couldn't understand something, if, the human, uh, if humanity couldn't explain or measure or observe it, well, then it wasn't real. And so they decided, since you couldn't prove a miracle, you couldn't repeat it, well, then it obviously wasn't possible. Miracles weren't possible. Miracles, by definition, broke the laws of nature. The laws of nature were always kept. Therefore, miracles didn't happen. They reasoned. And since you couldn't prove the existence of God, you couldn't see or touch or feel him, then, well, he mustn't exist either. There was no spiritual realm. There was only the physical, measurable, observable world. Uh, that, that was what Hume and others decided, but, it, of course, it's probably been the, the dominant belief in much of academia, in university science and philosophy departments ever since. But it's actually dribbled down into popular culture so much that most people today believe that religion, that belief, has no part to play in public life at all. Uh, in schools, in universities, in the political process, in scientific inquiry, in business. Keep your faith to yourself. It's got nothing to do with what the rest of us are on about. But that wasn't the only type of person who came out of the Enlightenment or contributed to the Enlightenment. There were plenty of Christians, as the video said. Plenty of Christians at the time who saw that faith in God actually encouraged them to investigate his creation. Uh, they believed that God himself was intelligent and consistent when he created the world, and so his world reflected that. It was designed. It was consistent. Order could be identified and studied. God made it good, so it was worth investigating. God gave us the task of ruling and subduing the earth, so studying it helped us to do that better. And so these scientists, these philosophers, rather than thinking that the spiritual and physical worlds were separate, they saw the physical world as evidence of the spiritual world that God had left his fingerprints all over his creation. Uh, scientists such as uh, Robert Doyle, the founder of modern chemistry in the 1600s, uh, who, despite his luscious locks, 
was able to uh, come up with this statement, God is the author of the universe, the free establisher of the laws of motion. There are laws there, but God is the one who's put those in place. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton, who wrote more uh, theology than he did science, uh, said, in the absence of any other proof, the thumb alone would convince me of God's existence. So just human anatomy and the design and the beauty of the design convinces him of God's existence. Uh, Louis Pasteur, the founder of microbiology and immunology in the 1800s, said, the more I study nature, the more I stand amazed at the work of the creator. Science brings men nearer to God. Uh, Lord William Kelvin looks quite distinguished, doesn't he? Uh, he worked on thermodynamics, the concept of absolute zero, and the, the Kelvin temperature scale was named after him. But he said, if you study science deep enough and long enough, it'll force you to believe in God. In fact, Charles Darwin, whose theory of evolution explaining the origin of species has been used as a weapon against belief in God, uh, wrote this. The question of whether there exists a creator and ruler of the universe has been answered in the affirmative by some of the highest intellects that have ever existed. To this list of scientists uh, who recognise the creator in the creation, uh, we can add the writer of Psalm 104. So we're going to spend a few minutes looking at Psalm 104 together. If you've got it, if you've got your Bibles there, it would be great to open them. Uh, the more this, this uh, scientist author uh, looks at nature, the more he sees God. Studying the physical world teaches him more about the spiritual world. Uh, looking at the material helps him identify the immaterial. Uh, verse 1, he begins with a faith statement, or if you're a scientist, call it a, a theory based on evidence. Verse 1. Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendour and majesty. His faith assertion, his, uh, his theory based on evidence, is that God is great and majestic and he can be communicated with. So where's his evidence? Well, he begins by looking to the sky, verse 2. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. I think we've all done it, haven't we? We've all looked up at the sky, either during the day or at night, the starry sky at night, and we've imagined what's beyond what we can see. And perhaps we've then tried to imagine what's beyond that, and, and so on. We've got a far greater understanding of the size of the universe than the psalmist did. And yet when the psalmist looks at the sky, he sees that God is behind it. God made it all. Uh, it's evidence that he is great and majestic. Verse 5, the author drops his, his gaze to the earth. Uh, he set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. When he looks at the sky, stretching on and on, it tells him something of God's size. Uh, when he looks at the earth, how solid it is. It says something of God's stability, something of God's strength. He moves to the oceans. When he looks at the oceans, how uncontrollable and chaotic they seem, it tells him something of God's power. Verse 6. 
You covered it with the deep as with a garment. You covered the earth uh, with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke the waters fled. The sound of your thunder they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Uh, Hydraulic engineers, plumbers and builders will tell you how hard it is to keep water where you want it and and out of where you don't want it. Water just has a way of getting in. But here we're told that God sets the place that water will stay. Water stays there. Water stays there. But that's not all. The psalmist turns his, uh, his attention from creation to providence, from, from God's initial making of the world to his everyday caring for it. Uh, more evidence that God is great and majestic. Verse 10, uh, he thinks about the way water moves around the planet via the water cycle. We all did that in primary school. Remember the, the project with the water cycle diagram? How water moves from salt to fresh, from liquid to vapour to ice, from, from the depths to the mountaintops, from the earth to clouds. And all the way around, it provides life, life for plants and animals and fish. And God is commanding and controlling it all. Verse 10, he makes springs, pour water into the ravines, it flows between the mountains They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. Human beings are pretty clever. We can build dams. We can set irrigation quotas. We can restrict water usage. We can design water-saving devices, flow inhibitors for taps and half-flush toilets. We can change our plans for harvesting and sowing. We can breed genetically modified drought-resistant crops, but we can't make it rain. There are limits to what science can do. There are questions science can't answer. There are problems science can't fix. And studying God's world, using the tools of science, actually teaches us those lessons. We just watch the water cycle and we think we can't control that. When there's drought, when farmers and weather forecasters and government policy makers run out of ideas, when despair and hopelessness grow, even the unbeliever turns to prayer. Because no matter how much he doesn't want to believe it, the unbeliever knows deep down the truth of verse 13 that God waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. And just perhaps, just perhaps, one of the reasons we're in drought is that God wants Australia to humbly acknowledge him, to turn from its pride and independence Since the age of enlightenment, since the Industrial Revolution, we have slowly forgotten, humanity has slowly forgotten, that we are creatures, not creators. We're creatures, not creators. We are dependent, not sovereign. Science and technology have, one after another, solved many of our big problems. 
mechanisation, immunisation, antibiotics, electricity, computers, organ transplants, joint replacements. We've travelled to the moon, we've broken the sound barrier, we've captured images from millions of light years away, we've mapped the human DNA genome, but we can't cure a cold or control the weather or the tides or the bushfires. We can't cure Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or cystic fibrosis. We can't stop wars or gun massacres or racism. We watch on helplessly as earthquakes, floods and tsunamis rage. God is creator. There's only one creator. We are simply creatures. And humbly studying his world using the tools of science help us to remember that. But as well as humility, studying creation makes us grateful and joyful, the psalmist reminds us. Grateful and joyful because God provides for his creatures. Look there from verse 14. He makes grass grow for the cattle, plants for man to cultivate, bringing food, bringing forth food from the earth. He does that. Wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, bread that sustains his heart. We can plant the seeds, we can tend the grapevines, but we're dependent on God to make the, the, the plants grow. We can, squeeze, we can squeeze the grapes, we can grind the grain, but it takes the yeast that God creates to turn those things into wine or to bread. God's got to do that. The psalmist continues... Not just humanity, verse 16, God provides for the rest, of his uh, the rest of his creatures, for trees and birds and goats. Down to verse 21, even the lions, so, so independent, so powerful, even they look to God for their food. And then in verse 24, we, we come to this summary statement. Here we have the psalmist, the natural scientist, proposing the conclusion to his investigation. How many are your works, O Lord? Verse 24. In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Verse 25, including the sea, vast, teeming with life. Verse 27, these all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they're created and renew the face of the earth. God is the one who, who provides. God is the one who withholds. He gives life. He takes it away. And that's a very different way of looking at the world to a David Attenborough nature documentary. There's no God for David Attenborough. His, the world, as he sees it, it's all about chance. It's all about survival of the fittest. It's all about death. Well, there's one last conclusion about God for the psalmist, verse 31 and 32, about how the creator connects to his creation. And I wonder if it gives us a little hint as to why God made the world in the first place. 
May the Lord rejoice in his works. God looks at his creation on the sixth day and says it's very good. There's joy there. Joyful. The joyful relationship between the creator and his creation. And then the psalmist turns back on himself. He's had a a long look at uh, outside himself and now he turns to himself. And here's the practical application. Verse 33, I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. Is that the meditation on creation? I think so. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. The creator rejoices in his creation. Uh, The right response is for creation to rejoice in its creator. That's what God asks of us, that we rejoice in him, in his sustaining, in his providing, in his creating. As we look at creation, it drives us closer to God, the creator. Uh, The truth is the material world, the creation, and the spiritual world, the creator, are intimately connected. That's the world, the physical world. The psalmist wasn't alive at at the right time to be able to see the greatest connection, though, between God and the physical world. He wasn't around to see when the creator became a creature. He wasn't there to see the word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. When Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity, didn't hold on to equality with God but made himself nothing and took on human flesh. Now people may find God in creation but they'll see him a whole lot more clearly in Jesus, God in the flesh. And so when your scientific, your rationalistic, uh, sceptical friends question how you can believe in God and be a thinking person... By all means, point them to creation. That's a good first step. Point them to the evidence for intelligent design in the universe. But even better, point them to Jesus. Give them a Bible. Give them the documentary evidence. Offer to read it with them. Take them to a course like Christianity Explored. The historical documents are evidence that can be studied. People saw and heard and touched Jesus and were convinced that he was God in the flesh and that he died and came back to life. And their belief was made more certain because of the evidence. One of those eyewitnesses wrote this in 1 John chapter 1 about Jesus. That which was from the beginning which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. That's Jesus. Uh, The spiritual become physical, uh, who could be investigated and researched and touched. And as Jesus was walking among us, 
he encouraged that same sort of investigation, that research, that uh, reasoning. Uh, in Luke chapter 12, when people were worried about life, he didn't just say, oh, look, just trust me. It's all right. Just believe it. I'll look after it. He didn't say that. He said, consider the ravens. Investigate. Uh, look at the lilies. Put them under a microscope. Put a, a time-lapse camera on them. Research them. God looks after them. And he'll look after you. In Mark chapter 2, when a lame man was lowered through the roof for Jesus to heal and Jesus said his sins are forgiven and people wondered how he had the authority to forgive sins, he didn't just say, just trust me, I can do that, I can forgive sins. What did he say? He said, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? And then he healed him. He provided evidence for the belief. Uh, and in John chapter 20, when uh, he appeared to the disciples after his resurrection, Thomas wasn't there, good old Thomas, and Thomas wouldn't believe the disciples. He said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side, I won't believe it. Show me the evidence, he's saying. Uh, but Jesus didn't dismiss him, did he? Uh, when he finally appeared to Thomas... He invited Thomas, put your hand here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas did. The evidence supported his belief and he worshipped Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus welcomes our investigating. He welcomes us using reason, our examining the evidence, searching for the truth. Now, you can be confident that science will never discover something that disproves the Bible. Science will never discover something that disproves the Bible. Good science and Christianity are in agreement. That they both encourage a search for truth. They both encourage a search for truth. Science can do lots of great things. Uh, we should rejoice in them. As Christians, we should study science. We should discover better ways that we can cultivate and care for and rule the earth and ways we can help people. But don't forget, science can't stop a war or forgive your sins or cure a broken marriage. Science can't resurrect the dead. It can't locate the human soul. It can't analyse love. Science can't explain why we weep while we listen to an opera or a symphony. Science can't explain why we look in wonder at a sunset or a painting or why we laugh at a joke. Science can't measure the immeasurable or see the unseeable or understand what's beyond human understanding. Science can't know tomorrow. So don't place your ultimate trust in science. Place it in the one who created us and who gave us the tools, the one who from beyond eternity sent his son into time and space to save us, to know us, to dwell in us. God influences his world, his physical world, every day, all the time, and he calls us to do the same. 
He calls us to be incarnational in the way that Jesus was incarnational, to, to infect the physical world with the spiritual. He calls us to imitate Jesus, to be Jesus' hands and feet. He calls us to live out by the power of his spirit, truth and, and love and forgiveness and acceptance and joy and purpose and peace. And when we live like that, people will begin to see the eternal, spiritual, Trinitarian God in us. That's what God made us to do. To begin, uh, to, begin to give people evidence for the spiritual immaterial uh, in a physical, material world. I want to finish with one last quote. Uh, it's from Richard Smalley, who uh, won the 1996 Nobel Prize for Chemistry. Uh, you may have heard of buckyballs. They, they were like um, a new sort of soccer-shaped um, molecule for carbon. But he discovered them, and, and he also discovered some other things. Listen to what he, he wrote. Uh, recently I've gone back to church regularly with a new focus to understand as best I can what it is that makes Christianity so vital and powerful in the lives of billions of people today, even though almost 2,000 years have passed since the death and resurrection of Christ. Although I suspect I will never fully understand, I now think the answer is very simple. It's true, God did create the universe and of necessity has involved himself with his creation ever since. Now, the purpose of this universe is something that only God knows for sure, but it's increasingly clear to modern science that the universe was exquisitely fine-tuned to enable human life. We are somehow critically involved in his purpose. Our job is to sense that purpose as best we can, love one another, and help him get that job done. It's a good way to finish, I think. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for your world that points to you. We thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus. Uh, we pray that you would help us to trust you, uh, to stand up for you. Uh, we pray that... Uh, we thank you for the brains that you've given us. We thank you for, for many... Uh, Christians who are, uh, are researching and helping people as they design and build and uh, learn things. Uh, we pray that through it all that we might trust you and live for you and point people to you and the Lord Jesus. Amen.